my dear brethren and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'd like to begin this evening by saying that uh, we appreciate that quite a number of you weren't able to be with us for the first of our studies two weeks ago due to necessary other arrangements and uh, therefore it was a little unfortunate that we commenced our study with a number of you away who are usually regular attenders. So that in that regard we would just like to make a couple of points. The first is that our brother Graham Hill, we mentioned this last uh, class, has volunteered to each class take down notes of the main principles of those things that he can make sense of anyway, which I hope is something uh, considerable. Uh, and he's going to put those in a note form for us at each class. And you know the old principle, which is very, very correct, that one volunteer is better than ten pressed men. I want to emphasise that Graham has volunteered to do this. Uh, and so tonight on the table here, we have the first of those notes from our first class. Uh, they're available not only for those who weren't here at the first class, but they're here for all of you. So perhaps if uh, we have one to a family or something like that, uh, you can use those. And Brother Graham's main idea in providing these notes was to help you with Bible marking if you want to uh, concentrate on the studies as we go through and yet have some notes that will help you to mark up your Bibles in relation to these chapters. The other point that we should really mention is, just as a reminder to everybody for that matter, that basically our class in the first of these series revolved around the 1st of Samuel chapter 8 in large measure, although we did look at other scriptures elsewhere. And what we saw was that the system of the monarchy developed in Israel, not because it was of Yahweh's will or according to his purpose at that particular time, but because the people demanded it. And they not only demanded a king, but they demanded a special kind of king, like all the nations round about so that what they wanted was a king they could look up to, someone they could take pride in, someone they could honour and magnify and put on a pedestal, make a big fellow out of him, and uh, someone who would lead them out to battle. Of course, the point was, as we stressed at the last class, Yahweh was their king. But what had happened is they'd forgotten all about that, and Yahweh had been dethroned in the hearts of the people. And so every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So with that in mind, we saw that when Saul was made king, although Yahweh told Samuel who he was to anoint and who was picked for this position, yet in actual fact he was really the people's choice. Sometimes people get a little confused about this. The people demanded a king and they got what they wanted and yet God told Samuel who to make king. The fact of the matter is that Yahweh gave them the sort of king they wanted. But it's most noteworthy when we come to chapter 16 tonight that when it came to his replacement and it came to the appointment of David to be the next monarch that Yahweh gave the people no say in the matter whatever. He just simply said, I'm going to get you, to Samuel, to anoint a king whom I will choose. So Yahweh was going to choose the next king. So with those thoughts in mind, perhaps it might be wise if we just briefly glance, first of all in 1st of Samuel 10, uh, uh, at the, uh, uh, the last, rather chapter 13 I think we'll look at perhaps uh, so that we can just make these points fairly quickly the last two major failings of Saul chapter 13 recounts the long standing war between Israel and the Philistines it just went on and on and on like a never ending theme because uh, uh, Saul was not of a mind to really gather Israel together, give them really sound leadership, go to war against the Philistines and fix them up once and for all and rid their influence out of the land of the kingdom of Israel. He wasn't of a mind to do that. So uh, therefore the Philistines kept infiltrating the land and there was battle after battle, struggle after struggle. And so in chapter 13 we find that Saul is at Gilgal and he's trying to get his army rallied together um, we find uh, in verse 7 that some of the Hebrews went over Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. In other words, they got out of it altogether. They didn't want to get mixed up in this. And at the end of verse 7, we find that uh, for the people who did follow him, they followed him trembling. So this is what they thought of the great king. This is how much confidence they had in the one that they wanted to be able to look up to and glorify and magnify. Now here, in this chapter, by prior arrangement, it was evident that Samuel had agreed with Saul that before this battle was entered into, Samuel would arrive 
and that he would arrange for suitable sacrifices to be offered so that Yahweh's blessing might be sought upon them going out to war. That was in harmony with the requirements of the law in Deuteronomy chapter 20. And apparently the arrangement was that Samuel would come in seven days. And you'll notice that in verse 8 it says that he tarried seven days, that is Saul. He tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. Notice particularly that it does not say there that he tarried seven full days. It is implied here that the total period had not yet elapsed. And no doubt as a test for Saul, Samuel arrived at the last moment. So verse 8 says that he tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. But Samuel came not to Gilgal and the people were scattered from him. So what did Saul do? He panicked. Instead of exercising faith and patience, he went into a panic. And in verse 9, Saul said, Bring hither a burnt offering to me, and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. He had no right whatever to do that. That was a fatal thing to do. He had no right to offer, to make offerings. He had no priestly office. But then you see in verse 10, And it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offerings, behold, Samuel came. But by then his folly was undone. And by way of trying to make an excuse, in verse 12, he says to Samuel, look, I forced myself. Notice those words there, I forced myself. Which of course was totally untrue. It shows the disposition that Saul had. He didn't consult with Yahweh. He didn't offer prayer. He didn't seek a way out by divine means. And Samuel pronounces this verdict upon his stupidity in verse 13 with a very simple statement. Thou hast done foolishly. And he had indeed. And then follow those well-known words in verse 14. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. Yahweh hath sought him a man after his own heart. We look at that again a little later on. And Yahweh hath commanded him to be captain over his people. The other point we'd like to just draw attention to is in chapter 15 in relation to Agag. And although there's a great deal here to be looked at and that could be commented upon, we just want to make one point tonight in regard to this 15th chapter and the way in which you'll recall Saul saved the best of the things that uh, he thought might be of future use or value when he had been specifically instructed to destroy everything, absolutely everything. But then we find in verse 24, and this is the only comment that we're going to make on this at this time, is that Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned. So he knew that he'd done wrong. Uh, Samuel had already faced him with, with what he had done. So he says unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of Yahweh and thy words. Now that sounds very impressive. But look what he says next. Why did he do it? Because I feared the people. Because I feared the people. Now we might say, well we can understand that. But really, can we? You see, what he's saying is that he feared the people more than he feared Yahweh. You see, his heart was not with God. His heart was with the people. And the people were applying a certain amount of pressure to him, perhaps. That may well have been so. But you see, there's a great lesson in that. It doesn't matter whether the majority of the people are right or whether they are wrong. Hopefully they will be right in the decisions that they want the ecclesia to make, or whatever it might be, under whatever circumstances may accrue. But the thing is, it doesn't matter whether the people want this or whether the people want that. It is what Yahweh wants that is important. And so therefore we must all learn to fear Yahweh more than we fear the people. Because he is the one to whom you must ultimately give account. And so this of course brought the final undoing of Saul. Now before we get on to these last couple of verses in chapter 15 and into chapter 16, we just want to have a few comments to make regarding Jesse. Because we're dealing here with the house of Jesse. As far as his name is concerned, it's very uncertain as to what the origin is. The only thing I've been able to discover myself in consulting many different Hebrew authorities is that it is associated with a word which means to stand out. 
And that can be used in the sense of a man of prominence or a man of wealth or it can be used in the sense of a man of worth, of value. So that's the nearest we can get to his name. And that, is, uh, that comes from Gesenius and uh, that is also supported by Smith in his Bible Dictionary. And yet the things that we find out about Jesse are that really he was a very poor man and a very humble man in contrast to Saul who came from a very wealthy family. And yet well, he has this name. And so therefore the only conclusion we can make is that he was a man who stood out in spiritual things. He was a man who stood out in his spiritual qualities. We have only to look at his son David to find out uh, what extent that is. And you know, although Jesse is not mentioned a lot in Scripture, there's one passage that I believe is very, very exquisite, very, very beautiful. We'll just turn to it while keeping a hand, if you would, in First of Samuel 15, because that's our... Uh, our starting point tonight and the one that we'll mainly be dealing with I'd like you to go to Isaiah in chapter 11 just for a moment and notice there something very very special this doesn't normally happen in, uh, in scripture as far as Jesse is concerned and as far as most men in his position would be concerned now we find here that Isaiah puts great store on the spiritual value of Jesse because in verse 1 of this chapter he says there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots and in verse 10 it says and in that day there shall be a root of Jesse which shall stand for an ensign of the people to it shall the Gentiles seek and his rest shall be glorious now to me those verses that specifically mention Jesse, in of all places the prophecy of Isaiah so many centuries afterwards, we just wonder why on earth does it say Jesse? Why couldn't it have said a rod shall come forth out of the root of Judah? Judah is far more well known. You just imagine people in the days of Isaiah reading through that prophecy saying Jesse, Jesse, oh yes, the father of David and having to think a little while. There were numerous very famous persons in David's line and God willing at our next class we're going to present you with a list of David's genealogy which uh, may be helpful in some ways. But nevertheless there were others that could have been mentioned. You, you might think that since the tribe of Judah is so important that Isaiah would have mentioned Judah. So why does he mention Jesse? And I believe that there's a reason for that and that is that while Jesse is not elevated in the scripture the Spirit acknowledges his spiritual value by listing him there in Isaiah 11 as the one from whom the seed, the branch, the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of God, would come. In other words, the Spirit is showing and giving a stamp of approval on that man Jesse, of whom apart from that really, we read very, very little in Scripture other than in the genealogies. And I think that's very, very beautiful. But there in Isaiah, in that 11th chapter, in verse 1 and in verse 10, in those wonderful prophecies concerning the coming of the branch, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he should be mentioned there as being descended from Jesse. A very wonderful and a very beautiful little point. In chapter 18 of the first of Samuel, and at verse 18, we find that David, in conversing with Saul, says to him, Who am I? And what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? David was of very humble origins. And his household was not known and not valued and not in any great prominence in Israel. And so therefore, that together with other passages indicate that really the house of Jesse were a humble family and they had a humble background they were not wealthy in the things of the world and yet he was a man who by the signification of his name stood out in the sense of his spiritual values and you know David was always addressed by his enemies as that son of Jesse that son of Jesse 
And they never realised that term occurs again and again and again, especially used by Saul. You look up the number of times that that term is used. It's used contemptuously of David. Thou son of Jesse. Or that son of Jesse. They didn't realise that they were saying, that son of a man who stands out because of his spiritual qualities and his spiritual values. So we find that Jesse was commonly called Jesse the Bethlehemite. And we find him addressed as such in chapter 16 and verse 1. Now we know that Bethlehem signifies the house of bread. So therefore when we put those two names together we have the one who stands out in the house of bread. And we know that bread is a symbol for the word of God as in Matthew 6 and verse 11 and in the first of Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23 and remember that passage in John 6 that long discourse that the Lord had with the Jews but there was a more complete title that Jesse was given we find it in chapter 17 of first of Samuel and at verse 12 where he is termed Jesse the Ephrathite of Bethlehem Judah Now just think of that, we have four names there. Jesse, the Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah. Bethlehem, Judea, meaning Bethlehem in Judea, obviously. So when we put all that together, we find that the idea of the name Ephrathite, or the title Ephrathite, relates to being fruitful. We know that the name Judah means praise. And again and again in scripture it's implied that it signifies praise to God. And so when we put all those names together we find Jesse the Ephrathite of Bethlehem Judah. The one who stands out, who is fruitful in the house of bread to praise Yahweh. And there surely is an indication, even though ever so obliquely, of a very, very wonderful man in the truth and one who was chosen by Yahweh that through his line should descend the one who would become the branch, the son of David and the son of God. Not only so, but in the prophecy of Isaiah, Yahweh is pleased to elevate the name of Jesse in the writings of the sacred word in that very wonderful and that very beautiful way. Now when we first meet Jesse in the first of Samuel chapter 16 he is an old man. In fact in chapter 17 and verse 12 we have a reading there from Rotherham who renders that that he was old and advanced in years. The Jerusalem Bible renders it old and well on in years. And yet he had a comparatively young family as we shall see in a little while. So the family of Jesse consisted of eight sons and uh, we read of that in the first of Samuel 17 and verse 12 but in the Chronicles account of the genealogies in the first of Chronicles chapter 2 and verses 13 to 15 seven are listed not eight but seven. So what are we to make of that? Is there a contradiction? Well, we don't believe so. We believe that between the writing of Samuel, Samuel's account, and the later chronicle record, one of the sons had died. And when you have a look at that and put it all together, you'll find that the one who died was the seventh. So David was the eighth. And what a wonderful number that is. The biblical number for the cutting off of flesh. But more important than that, It is the biblical number for Jesus Christ. And you may know that in the writings of the scripture from the beginning of Matthew right through to the last of the epistles right up until Jude the term Jesus Christ occurs exactly 888 times. There is nothing uh, coincidental about that. That is by divine inspiration. Eight is the number of the Lord Jesus Christ. David, as the youngest son of Jesse, has a name which means beloved. 
and I'm sure that we're all aware of that. But in Mark chapter 1 and verse 11, we learn how that the Lord Jesus Christ was the antitype of David. Because there, Yahweh speaks of his son and says, Thou art my son, the beloved. I know our version reads, Thou art my beloved son, and in thee am I well pleased. But the, the grammatic uh, construction of the sentence is more the other way. Thou art my son, the beloved. In other words, the David, the antitype of David. And so, when we come to the theme of the first of Samuel 16, which we're going to be looking at now, very, very shortly, we find that the theme of this 16th chapter is that Yahweh chose David to be king because Yahweh looks on the heart in verse 7. And very simply, that is the theme of this 16th chapter. And that speaks volumes, doesn't it, for David's character. Even when he was a stripling, as he's termed in the first of Samuel, chapter 17 and verse 56, a stripling, the Hebrew word elen, and it means a youth, a young man of the age of puberty. The word has been rendered young man in the first of Samuel chapter 20 and verse 22. So the words that are so important that we saw earlier on in that chapter that God would choose a man after his own heart were words that were uttered by Yahweh at a time of David's life when he had not yet come out of obscurity and when he was still a teenager. In all probability, when David is introduced to us in the Bible, in the first of Samuel chapter 16, and there we meet him for the first time, he was probably aged between about 16 and 18. He may have been, been as young as 15, but certainly he was a teenage boy. And yet, God says of him in chapter 13 and verse 14, that he is a man after God's own heart. And this is some of the very little information that we have concerning David as a, as a young man. And it's very interesting in that passage in the first of Samuel 13 and verse 14, that when God describes him, though only a teenage boy, as a man after his own heart, he doesn't use the word Adam. He doesn't use the word Enosh, which means a frail or a weak man. He uses the word Ish which means a great man, a captain, a leader, a man of some greatness. So as a young boy, he had that standing in the eyes of Yahweh. And do you know that when that passage is quoted in Acts chapter 13 and verse 22, some words are added to the quotation out of Samuel, and the words that are added are these, which shall fulfil all my will. Those words aren't found in Samuel, but they are found where the quotation is made in Acts 13 and verse 22. So, although David's mother is not named in Scripture, we don't know at this time who she was. She was a wonderful, wonderful woman. And Jesse, as we've seen, was a very wonderful man in the truth. And so his education in his upbringing in the truth was very, very valuable to him and to those who would later become influenced by him. And the only other comment we wish to make at this point, because we'll be outlining a few other things regarding David uh, as we proceed with our study, is that David's reign lasted until he was 70. We know that he died at the age of 70, having reigned for 40 years. But here's what is interesting about that. He commenced to reign at the age of 30. Isn't that interesting as a type of Christ? In the second of Samuel, chapter 5 and verse 4. And after he had reigned seven years over Judah from Hebron, he then reigned 33 years over the United Tribes. That's expressed in the first of Kings, chapter 2 and verse 11. 33 years. The age of Christ at his death. So we find these wonderful points that uh, associate the life of David 
with the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's only the start. Just wait until you see some of the things that are going to come out in the course of these chapters and this section of the word that is before us. One other thing that perhaps we ought to mention about David at this stage is that there is more written about his life than any other man in the whole of biblical history saving only the Son of God himself. The narrative of his life is found from the first of Samuel chapter 16 right through to the first of Kings chapter 2 and verse 11. And then again in the first of Chronicles chapters 2 and 3 and chapter 11 right through to 29. There are more than 63 chapters of scripture devoted to the life of David plus at least 73 psalms that we know of that uh, would have been written by his pen. So these are wonderful aspects of the life of David and we'll see more of these things unfold to us as we go on. But now let's go back to the narrative in the first of Samuel chapter 15 and see where Samuel was so downcast and was very, very despondent at what had happened because it's fairly evident that since Yahweh had said that he had now taken the kingdom away from Saul, that the system of the monarchy only just now established is already in a state of ruin. And to Samuel it looked as though everything was over. And so in verse 35 of chapter 15, the very last verse of chapter 15, which really continues straight on into the 16th chapter. There shouldn't really be a break there at all, as we shall see. But nevertheless, in the final verse, verse 35 of chapter 15, it says that Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. It doesn't mean at the day of his death. It means right up until the time he died. Samuel came no more to see Saul. In other words, the relationship was ended so far as Samuel was concerned. You see, back in chapter 28 of that chapter, Samuel had said to Saul, Yahweh hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day and hath given it to a neighbour of thine that is better than thou. It didn't literally happen this day, but that day was the day when Yahweh finally broke from Saul, completely and utterly. And because Yahweh had broken from him, Samuel broke from him as well. So it means that Saul no longer received Yahweh's commands, his counsel, his guidance or his direction, either through Samuel or anyone else. And you know we ought to pause and think about that for a moment because that is the tragic picture and the tragic situation of a man who turns away from the path of the truth. Someone who has been called by Yahweh Remember that lovely little verse that we saw two weeks ago that when Saul went back home to Gibeah he wasn't left to his own resources that beautiful little verse that says that God sent with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched so that Yahweh did not leave him to his own resources and just wait for disaster to come. Yahweh did everything he possibly could to educate Saul in a right way so that he might be a successful king for the welfare and benefit of the people of Israel and to the glory of his God. But you see, it didn't happen. And so, because Saul turned away from the truth, Yahweh turned away from him. And that's something that we can never afford to allow to happen in our own lives because then we're left bumbling around all over the place everywhere, thinking that we're still in the truth, perhaps even attending meetings uh, from time to time, but yet really not walking in the way of the truth, not honouring Yahweh, not giving our reverence to the word and the things of God. You see, it's a fatal and a terrible situation to be in, and Saul provides a great lesson of that. But despite that, you'll find that it says at the end of verse 35, nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and Yahweh repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. So you see, when it says that Samuel mourned for Saul, it means that he looked upon Saul as a man in the truth who had made shipwreck of his faith and left the nation destitute virtually and without guidance and leadership. The state of the nation at this time was unbelievable. 
People running hither and thither and not knowing where to go or what to do. The Philistines doing what they liked within the kingdom of Israel. Coming right through as far as Bethlehem even. And encamping where they went and doing what they liked. Because there was no organised, solid kingdom of Israel there to stand as one in the name of Yahweh and in the purpose of the truth that they might defeat the Philistines, their long-standing enemies. And so Samuel looked upon Saul as a, as a man who had made shipwreck of his faith and who would bring about the destruction of all who stood with him. He saw that. Samuel saw that very clearly. And so with a heavy heart, the old prophet made his way from Gilgal back to Ramah, back to his home. And at the end of verse, chapter 15, we're left with him seeing everything as the end of an era and seeing nothing but darkness and gloom ahead for the people of Israel. So, in verse 1 of chapter 16, Yahweh now challenges Samuel. Because, you see, what Samuel doing was doing, although we can understand his frame of mind and his disposition, it was not right. It was not right. God points that out to him. Look at the opening in chapter 16. Yahweh said unto him, Samuel, how long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? That's a very interesting point. Saul had certainly proven to be a failure and Samuel mourned because of those circumstances. But the lesson here, brethren and sisters, is that even when everything is going wrong, if the ecclesia is in a very sad or parlous state, as it was in the days of Samuel now, there was no real leadership, there was no real direction. The people didn't know what to do. There was no sound direction or guidance, whatever. And, and everyone was bewildered, not knowing where they were. And Samuel finds himself in the same position in that last verse of chapter 15. So Yahweh says to him, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul? As though to say, is that all you've got to do? Are you going to sit around for the rest of your life? You're already an aged man. There must be things that have got to be done before you die, before your time is finished. You're going to sit around and spend the rest of your life mourning for Saul when really he's proven that he's not worth mourning over? You see the lesson there? And God utters these words, Go, I will send thee. And there are tremendous lessons in that. That though there be failure in abundance, though at times we feel bereft, we feel despondent, we may feel greatly bewildered at what is happening around us, human failure is a constant thing. Yet the principle is that Yahweh will never be frustrated in his purpose. That's one of the first lessons. Yahweh will never be frustrated in his purpose. Nothing human, or inhuman for that matter, can frustrate him at all. So while Samuel at this point was content to nurse his grief, what he had to understand was that the work of the truth had to go on. And that's something that we have to get very clearly fixed in our minds. It doesn't matter what the circumstances of life are, in what condition we find ourselves in, or if everything is, seems to be opposed to us, everything is going wrong, nothing will go right. It's just trial after trial after trial. What is the situation there? The work of the truth must go on. And first and foremost, it must go on in our own lives. Not sit down and close up the Bible and say, well, I'm not going to bother to read the Bible or study the truth anymore until God does something worthwhile for me. If we're under a great trial or things are very difficult or we're particularly despondent, it's only because Yahweh allows that situation. Do we think for one moment that he can't take that away and, and remove that without, without any worry whatsoever? So we know that he will pursue his purpose no matter what man does and he will not be deterred until he has realised all his purpose. We know that kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Men rise up and men fall down. But Yahweh continues to work for the fulfilment of his objective. 
And so therefore Samuel must now rouse himself from his despondency. And as it says in the first of Corinthians chapter 3 and at verse 9, he must become a labourer together with God. And aren't those wonderful words in that passage in Corinthians? Together with God. And we can certainly do nothing without him. That is absolutely certain. We can do nothing without him. If his presence is not with us, if he does not bless our endeavours, if we do not seek his help and his guidance and his direction in the spirit of the truth, we can do nothing. We might think we're doing great things, but in his eye, in his eyes, it's of no value. So you see, we cannot remain mournfully inactive when things go wrong. We have to press on with our labours in whatever form they might be, perhaps in a very small way in our eyes, not very ostentatious, not very well spread abroad so that all our brethren and sisters see what we are doing. It might not be like that at all. We have to press on with our labours in the truth in faith. Faith is the principle. If we believe in God, if we believe that we are worshippers of God, if we believe that he indeed is our father and we are his children, then we have to acknowledge and to know and to realise that his eye will be upon us in that which we do. And he will note our disposition and our attitude. And he will see if we are struggling and striving as we should be, despite whatever adverse circumstances might exist. That's essential. So at this point we find in chapter 16 and verse 1, Yahweh said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go. I will send thee to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. Now do you notice here something very wonderful? Samuel was not told all the counsel of God at this point. Because you see, Samuel has to get his disposition right again. He has to get his mind back into gear in harmony with the spirit of the truth. Just like Abraham, when Yahweh said to Abraham, get thee out of thy country unto a land that I will show thee. He didn't know where he was going. We know that Hebrews said, he went out not knowing whither he went. But he went because he was motivated by the spirit of faith. So Samuel's got to get himself together now and get his mental processes in order. Listen carefully to what Yahweh says. Fill thine horn with oil and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have provided me a king from among his sons. So Samuel accepts this rebuke. He'd been so appalled at the conduct of Saul, which had resulted in what appeared to Samuel as being the demise of the monarchy altogether, he thought it was all finished. And all the uncertainty that reigned in Israel, we can surely understand Samuel's feelings at this time, that he was probably obsessed with the tragedy of the circumstances because he loved his God and he loved his people. We can understand that. So therefore, he must come out of this. And you see, God is quite firm here, isn't he, to Samuel, when he says, what are you mourning for him, seeing I have rejected him? Mourning. He should now look to carry out Yahweh's previously revealed intentions. Look, remember back in chapter 13, and at verse 14, we read these words a little while ago. We may have perhaps forgotten them already. But now thy kingdom, that is Saul, shall not continue. Yahweh hath sought him a man after his own heart, and Yahweh hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which Yahweh commanded thee. Samuel knew about that, and only a little while before that, in this 15th chapter, and at verse 28, we've read those words tonight too. What did Samuel say to Saul? Yahweh hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and have given it to a neighbour of thine that is better than thou. But what is Samuel doing? Instead of getting on with seeing what Yahweh wants to be done in regard to this matter, he's so depressed and he's so cast down with the failure of Saul and the darkness and gloom that he sees enveloping the entire kingdom 
and disaster on every hand. Then he forgets to exercise the principle of faith and to turn to Yahweh to find out what has got to be done. And Yahweh tells him in this first verse, I have provided me a king. And the word I there needs to have a ring round it in everyone's Bible or underlined in neon lights or whatever because it's a very important word. And we need to contrast this little expression here with a great scene presented in chapter 8 where the people come to Samuel and demand a king. We want a king just like all the nations round about us. But now at this time, neither the people are consulted nor were they even informed. So the lesson is that Yahweh alone knows what is best for man. And in that regard, we remember the words of Jeremiah 10 and verse 23, it is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. And so in that way, Yahweh was the one who made the choice. He didn't ask anyone's advice, nor did he advise anyone. The only one who was going to find out was going to be Samuel. Did you want to say something, Mark? to that verse where uh, uh, Saul was not left to his own resources when he went back home after he'd been anointed king Yahweh sent with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched so then in chapter 16 uh, and verse 2 we find that Samuel wasn't really altogether happy about this idea not at this particular point anyway and it's fairly indicative of the fact that Saul was a very very unhappy man at this time and probably displaying some of the very arrogant belligerence that he was to display more and more as uh, his disease came more and more upon him. We'll have a little bit more to say about that in a minute too. But Samuel says in verse 2, speaking to Yahweh, he says, how can I go? If Saul hear it, he will kill me. And Yahweh said, take an heifer with thee and say, I am come to sacrifice to Yahweh. So here is Samuel uttering an expression of very genuine fear. And it's, it's indicative of Saul's ungoverned willfulness. Samuel, who really was the, the greatest man in Israel at this time, and for his spiritual values, the man most looked up to for guidance, if only he had the opportunity to, to exercise it, even he is terrified at the idea of what Saul might do. And of course this was not an unreasonable statement, statement because Saul still regarded himself as king, and as we know what happens and is revealed in the later chapters, even though he knows eventually that David is to be the next king, he will fight tooth and nail to try and stop David from attaining to the, the, uh, the throne by killing him, by destroying him. So Samuel is well aware of the state of mind of, of Saul. And so Saul wasn't going to let anyone else be king, not while he had breath in his body. So Yahweh says to him, well look, there's a way out of this and there's something that you must do. Say I am come to sacrifice under Yahweh, which of course turned out to be exactly true. He was not uh, trying to be deceptive, he was not telling Samuel to be deceptive. But we do know that there are a lot of things that Yahweh does, it's revealed to us in the word, that he does in secret. You see, there's a difference between doing something in secret because it's not wise perhaps for others to know and being deliberately deceptive. They're two entirely different things. Yahweh is not deceptive. 
But if he likes to do something and virtually keep the matter to himself, using whatever servants he may feel are suitable for the time, then that's his affair. He, he's he's to be able to do that. So he's, Samuel is told to take an heifer with thee. So we might ask ourselves the question, well, of all animals that could have been taken and under these circumstances, why take a heifer? The Hebrew word is eglor, and it's the only time this word is ever used of a sacrifice. Now, normally, the masculine gender is used for a sin offering. And normally, uh, the priest's portion was given to him in the usual way, but here we have an animal where we have the feminine gender. Now, we're given a clue in Leviticus chapter 3 and verse 1 where it is stated for us in regard to the peace offering. Leviticus 3 and verse 1 If his oblation be a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offer it of the herd, whether it be a male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before Yahweh, the peace offering. Just imagine, the end of the sacrificial code, the very last of the offerings, the peace offering. I believe the offerings begin with the sin offering, go through to the bird offering, all the other offerings, and finally the peace offering which symbolises peace between Yahweh and the ones who are offering. The offerers and the one who receives the sacrifice, God himself. It could be male or female. So therefore, speaking of the time when male, the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, and female, the bride, will all come together in peace with God after the perfection of their trials. So Yahweh would make a covenant of peace with the house of Jesse. And in that, of course, we're to look far beyond the days of Jesse, far beyond the days of David, right through to the coming of God's own son, who would be son of God and son of David. A peace offering. A covenant of peace with the house of Jesse. And although David would undergo tremendous pressures and trials, sufferings and persecutions, he would eventually find that peace that he longed for and that had been promised to him and he will find that peace in the kingdom of God. So this was not the moment when David would ascend to the throne. He was not going to become king now. He would be anointed now but he must first be developed under trial. Something that had not proven successful with Saul. But you see him there also as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord has been anointed as well, but he has not yet received the throne. Like David, he has to wait until the time is right. So there would be no call at this particular time for the nation to rally behind a new king because this was not the moment when David was to emerge and bring together the nation. Because had that happened at that time, undoubtedly the entire nation would have been plunged into a a bloodshed of civil war because of the circumstances at that time. So Yahweh knew what he was doing. David was anointed king, but he has to wait before he receives the throne. And you know, it must be remembered also that never at any time in his life, not once, did David ever attempt to seize the throne from Saul, or for that matter, to even display any disloyalty toward him. David's position was, Saul is Yahweh's anointed. And he remains such until God removes him. And therefore David respected him for that, despite all the things he did to him. So such was David's character in contrast to that of Saul. And you know, even at the height of Saul's persecution of him, David never ever demanded recognition of his rightful position. Just simply in faith he waited for Yahweh to sort these matters out and to deal with them in the way that he would. And so in verse 4 it says in this chapter that Samuel did that which Yahweh spake and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Comest thou peaceably? But let's look at the opening words in verse 4. Samuel did that which Yahweh spake. You see, his doubts and his hesitation had now gone. He now sees a firm line of action that he must follow in fulfilling Yahweh's will. 
So reassured by God, he goes forth in faith. And in verse 3, Yahweh has said to him, I will show thee what thou shalt do. Very similar to the circumstances of Abraham coming out of Ur of the Chaldees. So he believed God and he went forth with faith in that promise that God had given him. I will show thee what thou shalt do. And Samuel's obedience to this promise brought a threefold blessing. The first was that any danger from Saul to Samuel was immediately averted. God's hand was upon him. The second was that God's guidance and blessing upon him was forthcoming as he had promised. Exactly as he had promised. And the third thing, and here's where we have to look way ahead into the future, for David's life anyway, is that out of this simple action, eventually, a new day was to dawn for Israel. Because out of the depth of despair, out of the darkest moments depicted in the very last chapter of First of Samuel, chapter 31, with Saul and his sons slain on Mount Gilboa, and the whole nation scattered and torn asunder, out of that fearful and dark picture, David was to emerge from obscurity and receive the throne and gradually work to unite the nation and bring them to their greatest hour, that is, before the Lord's coming. So he came to Bethlehem and, just in passing, for Samuel, that was a journey of some ten miles. But notice that the elders of the town trembled at his coming, or as Rotherham renders it, came trembling to meet him. Now why would they do that? Well, for the same reason that Saul was, uh, rather, I'm sorry, Samuel was terrified at what might happen. The uncertainty of the times. Nobody knew who was for who and who was not for who, or whatever. So Samuel, while he was respected very, very highly, would not normally be looked upon with fear. But this was a reaction of the people because of the tenseness of the atmosphere throughout Israel at this time when nearly everybody was in doubts and fears and uncertainties for what the future might hold. So they want to know what Samuel is doing here. He wouldn't normally come to this village and to this house of Jesse. Comest thou peaceably? The Jerusalem Bible rendered it, Have you come with good intentions towards us? And the word is shalom. Have you come in peace and friendliness? And in verse 5 he answered and said, Peaceably. And again the word is shalom. So he tells them then, sanctify yourselves. That is to prepare for the ceremony of this offering that's got to be made. You know, it's very interesting, isn't it? The necessity of preparing themselves before the offering of sacrifice to Yahweh. What a lesson there is to be learned there, isn't there? For all of us, and it applies in every age. We don't just rush off and say, I'll do this for God or I'll do that for God without thought or consideration. We need to carefully prepare our minds, prepare our thoughts before we come to the memorial meeting of a Sunday morning, before we do anything in our service to our God. Remember to sanctify ourselves because the God whom we serve is no ordinary God of the Gentiles. He is the great and the mighty God of Israel. And so we find here then in this verse that Samuel sanctified Jesse and his sons so he gave special attention to the ceremonial cleansing of all the males in Jesse's family. With one exception. There was someone who wasn't there. So it's implied that David was absent from the assembly of the family when Samuel sanctified them. So David would then have had to have been specially prepared for the sacrificial feast at his coming. And there again is a type of Christ. Because the Lord was the branch he was separated from all the rest of Israel, taken as a cutting of a vine, the vine being Israel, as Psalm 80 tells us, and planted anew for the special purpose of Yahweh. So David's separateness from the other members of the family here is shown. And in that surely, as we say, there is a type of Christ. So in verse 6, we find that the proceedings go ahead. Verse 6 says that it came to pass when they were come, that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely Yahweh's anointed is before him. There was a clear-cut statement. 
Now Samuel, though of course, as we know only too well, a wonderfully spiritually minded man, was making one slight error. And that was that he was looking on the outward appearance. Because you see, normally it would be the firstborn who would be the inheritor of any promise or any gift or any high rank or anything that was happening in that way. So he says, surely Yahweh's anointed is before you. Up stands Eliab. Samuel says, oh, this is going to be the one. Eliab was the firstborn. And in every respect, outwardly, he looked the part of Israel's future king. But how wrong Samuel was. What a lesson there is for us all there. That we should always try to look at things and make assessments from the point of view of Yahweh. What he thinks. What his view of things are. And invariably that's revealed to us through the pages of the word in some way or another. And so Samuel has to learn the lesson together with many others. And it was a lesson that David never forgot although he would have heard about it later. And Samuel didn't, uh, sorry, Solomon didn't forget about it either. Verse 7 tells us, But Yahweh said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, or on the height of his stature. Being the eldest, he was the biggest, because they were all, they were all young, as we'll see in a moment. Because, says God, I have refused him. For Yahweh seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but Yahweh looketh on the heart. And there it is. Rotherham renders it, for it is not what man looketh to, but what God looketh to. And the Jerusalem Bible renders it, God does not see as man sees. Now contrast this, keeping a hand there for a moment, right back to chapter 9 and verse 2. And look at the description that we have of Saul. Here is the outward appearance. Kish had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and a goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward he was higher than any of the people. That's what the people wanted. Judging from the outward appearance. But that's how man sees. If we have a look at the second of Samuel, chapter 14, just for a moment. Second of Samuel, chapter 14, and at verse 25, you'll notice this comment concerning another allegedly great man in Israel. But in all Israel, there was none to be so much praised as Absalom for his beauty from the sole of his foot even to the crown of his head there was no blemish in him not much a man who betrayed his own father and would have killed him but you see that's the outward appearance but let's have a look at Psalm 147 and here Conclude this evening with a view of David. How David looked at these matters. In Psalm 147. And verse 10 and 11. He delighteth not, this is Yahweh, he delighteth not in the strength of the horse, he taketh not pleasure in the legs of a man. Yahweh taketh pleasure in them that fear him, in those that hope in his mercy. There's the difference. So man looketh on the outward appearance. And at this point, this is exactly what Samuel was doing. And no doubt Jesse as well, waiting for this eldest son to be anointed. But you see... If the great Samuel could fall in a weakness, matter of weakness like that, as all Israel had in their choice of Saul, and as the fact that they failed to learn that lesson, and later the vast majority of them also fell under the, under the spell, the hypnotism of Absalom, then if they could fall like that, then how careful we must be. How very careful we must be 
And you know, by nature, by the nature that we bear, that it's got to be subdued, by nature we tend to form our judgments upon the basis of our limited knowledge, perhaps, or according to other personal reasons or thoughts or prejudices or interests. It's natural to man. But the truth is not natural and it doesn't make allowances for the natural man. Yahweh knows none of those weaknesses and therefore his judgments are always right and they're always perfect. That's what we saw in that hymn that we sang tonight. That Yahweh reads us as we can open a book and read a book. Yahweh reads us. He looks right into the heart of every one of us. Which sometimes is not a very comforting thought unless we are prepared to submit to his will. And so he looketh upon the heart. And with that in mind and with those lessons learned tonight, God willing, at our next class, we shall see the way in which David is chosen at the hand of Yahweh to be the next king over Israel.